Sometimes the past does need to be dug up. You want to see if there are wrongs to be righted, if there are sins to be confessed, if there are lessons to be unlearned. But you can do all of that and do it all perfectly, and it doesn't mean that it fixes everything. It doesn't mean that there's always change. Joseph teaches us that sometimes a famine isn't even enough. You know, this was an international famine, and that wasn't enough to wake up this father to his, his sinful heart and his attitudes that were killing his family. It wasn't enough to change him. And so we do what we do. We do what God leads us to do out of obedience to God, but we leave the rest in his hands. Well, we've been in a series called God at Work when we can't see him. And what we've been saying is that we follow an invisible God and we're called to live by faith. But Scriptures give us principles and patterns of God's working so that we can uh, understand him when we find those uh, times and circumstances in our lives when it's just not clear, uh, it wouldn't otherwise be clear what he might be doing. And uh, today we're dealing with uh, uh, that area of when the past needs to be dug up. Now, uh, this, partic- this uh, past week, I was learning, uh, I learned something new about elephants, uh, about elephant training, in fact. Uh, a book uh, by the name of James, uh, by James Belasco called Teaching the Elephant to Dance. And uh, he describes the training of young elephants. So apparently what they do is they're, uh, if they're training them for some uh, function like uh, the circus or uh, that, that, uh, that, that kind of uh, role, they will attach very heavy chains to uh, one of the legs when they are, when they are very young. And there, there'll be heavy chains. They'll have long, thick stakes that they dig far into the ground. And it, it means that when the uh, young elephant moves off in, outside of its area, it feels that uncomfortable tug on its leg, and it knows, okay, I'm moving outside of my space. This is, uh, this, I'm not supposed to go any farther. So they do that, and they continue to do that as the elephant grows. But once it reaches a, a full-grown elephant, it doesn't matter how hard they drive that stake into the ground. It has the power and the force to pull it right out. But it has been so conditioned by that, having that, uh, that thing around its leg secured when it was very young that even long after it has the strength to, uh, to, uh, to, to rip it out, it doesn't. In fact, uh, what he, what he, des- what he uh, describes is that once a, 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 an elephant gets to a certain age, they no longer need to even attach a chain to it. They will just put a small bracelet around the, uh, the leg of the elephant, and that will be enough to uh, communicate to the elephant, you don't have to go anywhere. Those, the invisible chains of its childhood continue to hold them in place. I suspect it's not just elephants that are conditioned by the invisible chains of their childhood, of those 
formative experiences growing up and some of the things that have been impacting us when we were younger and still uh, are things that we carry with us into adulthood. Often when, th when we look at our circumstances and we're asking those questions, what is God doing in my life right now? And it just seems so inexplicable. One of the things that we learned that God does in those times uh, where we, we don't know what he's doing is he digs up some of our past, some of the things that we may have wanted to put behind us, and he does so to help us to deal with them and to make sense of them, to uh, learn from them. Maybe there are things that need to be uh, dealt with, addressed, and confronted. And we see God doing that in uh, the, the, the story of Joseph this morning. And I think we see that God doing those same things in our own lives. If you're like me, I'm a person, hey, I like to live in the present, like to look to the future, but sometimes we need to dig up the past so that we can deal with it, grow from it, and break free of it. So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me to uh, Genesis. Uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis 42, verses 1 to 5, to get us started. Uh, in the Black Church Bibles, under the rack in the seat in front of you, it's on page 33. And we're going to be going through the whole chapter, but uh, I'm going to just start by reading verses 1 to 5. Genesis 42, verses 1 to 5. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. This is the word of God. Now last time, if you were with us, it felt like Joseph had kind of entered into the fulfillment of all his dreams. It felt like everything was going right for him. He was out of prison, promoted to second command in all of Egypt. He has all of the money, all of the authority that he could have ever dreamed for. He has, uh, he's, he's now married. He has two sons. Everything that he'd hoped for had perhaps come true. And, and we, we, we see that happening in his life, and we're, we're happy for him because he has experienced such hardship. He even named his firstborn son Manasseh, which, mean, which means made me forget, because uh, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And we're thinking, oh, this is so wonderful. You've gone through such heartache. God's made you forget all of that now. You can put it all behind you. And just as, God, as he comes to that place where he's forgotten all of those painful childhood memories of his family, what does God do but bring that family back into his life for him to, to, to deal with? The passage that I read for you explains why. In verse 1, when Jacob says, why do you look at one another? It's his way of saying, like, you guys are sitting around, sitting on your hands when, you know, we're going to die here from this famine. Why don't you go down to Egypt and buy some food? 
it's, it's interesting because those same brothers who had the elaborate plot and plan to get rid of uh, their brother Joseph find themselves here without any plan. And they need to be told by their father, get out of here, go, go, go farther afield. Uh, we know that there is grain in Egypt. Get down there, make the trip, buy, buy it for us, and return. If we were wondering whether Jacob, the father, the figurehead that uh, is at the head of this family, whether he has finally dealt with his favoritism, it becomes clear in this passage that he hasn't. Uh, In verse 4, it says, Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that, that harm might happen to him. Now, Benjamin is the other son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Rachel had two sons, Joseph, who had been uh, thrown into the pit by his brothers, sold into slavery, uh, headed off to Egypt. And there's the other brother, which is Benjamin. He's, he's uh, still hanging around here. And it's clear that Jacob has the same favoritism towards Benjamin that he did towards Joseph. Does Jacob fear that the brothers are going to harm Benjamin the way they had harmed uh, Joseph, do they fear that? Does he fear that he's going to kill him or get rid of him, sell him into slavery, or does he just see the other sons as expendable? I don't care if harm happens to them, but Benjamin, I don't want anything to happen to him. Either way, the picture that we get is this is a toxic family with some very unhealthy dynamics taking place, and there's uh, much that needs to be done. Joseph at this point, if I, at least if I was Joseph, I would be thinking, I'm super comfortable in Egypt. I'm living a good life. I've forgotten about those people. I've forgotten about all those, those problems. I'd kind of just like to get on with my new life. Thank you very much. But that isn't God's plan for him. God deliberately brings them back into his life to, uh, because there's more work to be done. In verse 6, Joseph's brothers arrive in Egypt. They're ready to try and buy some grain. And they, the, the meeting with their brother Joseph is described. They, they don't recognize him. 20 years has passed. He's all dressed Egyptian. He's cleanly shaven, Egyptian style now. Uh, they're looking just the same as they always looked. Uh, so he doesn't recognize them. But what's happening here can't be a coincidence. Uh, although Joseph is overseeing grain, uh, grain distribution, it's a national operation. It's an international operation. There's no way that he could personally supervise every last transaction. The fact that he happens to be there and the brothers happen to be brought directly to him can't be a coincidence. God is deliberately orchestrating this encounter because he has something he wants to do in Joseph's life and through Joseph's life uh, in the lives of his brothers and his, and his family. As Joseph's brothers appear before him, they express the courtesy and the respect that would be appropriate in their day. They bow down before him. And as they bow down before him, we get a picture uh, we learn that Joseph has, he's grown up a lot. He's matured since uh, the, uh, the, the last time that he has met his brothers. 
It's been more than 20 years since Joseph first dreamed of his family bowing down to him. But if you're with us when that first, when that first happened, you remember he blurted out his dream to his brothers without any care or thought to how it might impact them. And he was happy to, to gloat in the moment and enjoy uh, his thoughts of being this uh, proud owner of dreams of wonderful destiny. And so when they appeared before him now, because they had reacted so strongly against those dreams, we expect, them to re- we expect him to gloat just as he did 20 years back. We expect him to say, I told you so, look how rich and powerful I've become. And yet he doesn't do that. There is no, I told you so. In fact, he doesn't mention anything about the dreams. He doesn't let on anything about his identity The focus is all on the brothers. And it's not because he's forgotten the dreams. Verse 9 specifically tells us that Joseph remembered the dreams. In fact, it is the remembrance of those dreams that drives and motivates everything else that he does in the chapter. The dreams had promised 11 brothers. There are only 10 brothers bowing down before him. The the and what about his father? Where, where was he? Where, what had happened to him? Had, had greed and jealousy and competition and favoritism, had all of those toxic dynamics finally killed off his younger brother as well? Had, had, had they responded similarly to the father? Had Jacob been killed off? Had, had, had this whole family dynamic come to its terrible conclusion and ended in real deaths and, and uh, misery? Those are the questions that are going through Joseph's mind. So as much as he'd like to close the door on this family now and just get on with his new life and live the dream, he realizes, no, there's more work to do. He needs to, to, to go back and to deal with some of the issues in his life. And that's really the first lesson of this chapter, that uh, the, the happy ending is never just about us arriving. It, it's never just about our, 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 our comfort, and uh, seldom is that God's sole purpose for our lives. When Joseph had forgotten the troubles of his family, God deliberately brought his family back into uh, contact with him again put it back on his radar. And, but this is something we see often happen in scripture. And so for instance, uh, when, when Moses, he escapes to Midian, he starts a new family, he is safe, he's comfortable, he's settled. God appears to him, appears to him in the burning bush and what does he tell him to do? Go back to Egypt. He sends him back to Egypt, sends him back to the very place where Pharaoh was intent on killing him, and he does so because he has a purpose for his life there. He wants him to minister to his people. The same thing happened with the Apostle Paul. He meets Jesus on that Damascus road, and he could have just gone and enjoyed his new life. He, he is saved out of Judaism, come to, comes to know Jesus Christ as his Messiah, and he could have gone forward and not looked back. 
And yet God sent him right back into the synagogues, sent him right back uh, to the, the, the Jews that he had, he had grown up with to proclaim the message of salvation to them and to make him known. The happy ending is never just about arriving. And I think we all experience some of these dynamics. When you first put your faith in Jesus, you can become so excited about the new life that you never stop to deal with the old life. You might become so excited about your new church family that you never look back to deal with your biological family. And yet, in doing so, we miss out on some of those lessons that God would seek to teach us. Sometimes the past needs to be dug up. You can't grow without dealing with your past life, and often that involves family. Often that involves dealing with uh, the, the past, seeing whether there are uh, wrongs to be righted, things to be said, lessons to be unlearned. We go back and we, we do so with a sense of, uh, uh, of calling and purpose and trying to understand uh, what God pur- God's purposes for us might be. So sometimes the past needs to be dug up. We don't we're not going to confuse comfortable with God's plan and God's purpose. And we realize the happy ending is never just about arriving. Now, what happens next must have felt like a nightmare to Joseph's brothers. We might have suspected revenge on Joseph's part unless we had so many hints that that was not what was taking place. And so I want to just make sure that we're all clear this is not revenge that Joseph is carrying out because it kind of feels like revenge, all right? So first of all, in verse 9, we've been told that it's Joseph's dreams that are motivating him. He, he has been given some specific uh, uh, words and understanding from the Lord, and those are guiding and directing his actions. Then in verse 18, we're told that he is being led by the fear of God. A a healthy reverence towards God is directing his steps and leading his decisions. Then in verse 24, we see see Joseph weeping over his brothers. And this is the first, I think there are six times in uh, the coming chapters where we'll see Joseph will kind of retreat and he will weep over his brothers. He feels uh, such compassion towards them. And then finally in verse 25, he gives them all of their, when they'd come to, to buy grain, he gives them all of their money back secretly and fills them with as much grain as they can possibly carry. And so those hints in the story just tell us that what Joseph is doing is motivated by love and is directed by God. And, and it's important that we understand that because he, he is uh, not seeking out revenge on them. He is instead seeking to test them. Uh, that word testing ap- appears a couple times in the chapter to, to, to make it clear to us that's what Joseph is doing here. He needs to know whether there's been a change in his brothers, whether there's been a willingness to change, whether there has been a repentance that's taken place. And this is often what God does uh, when He asks us to dig up our past. So after accusing his brothers of being spies, he puts them in prison for three days. He needs to know whether there's there's been a change, and 
having them stop and think and reflect is going to bring that out in their lives. Let's pick up the story there and read verses 18 to 20. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Now, consider the test that God has Joseph set for the brothers. The one who was made to spy on his brothers is now accusing his brothers of be being spies. The one who had been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife now falsely accuses his brothers. The one who had been wrongly put in prison now wrongly puts his brothers in prison. And the one who was betrayed and attacked by his older brothers now asks those older brothers to bring their younger brother, and we're going to see what, how they are going to respond. We're going to see whether they will treat the younger brother in the same way that, that they treated him, or whether maybe they in fact already have treated that younger brother the way they treated him. If there's no repentance, these tests will reveal their true heart. The test will show Joseph that reconciliation is impossible. Just because the, he's put the painful memories of what they did behind him, it doesn't mean that he has to celebrate Thanksgiving with people who threatened him with murder, kidnapped him, and sold him into slavery. That just wouldn't be safe. And so these tests are an important part of what God is doing in their lives. If there's repentance, these tests will refine them. They'll be able to see the pain that they've caused and have a chance to show that they've truly changed. It will result in genuine reconciliation in this family. And that leads us to the second takeaway take from today's passage. Shame can make God's testing feel like an attack. Almost everything that's happening in this chapter, if you look at it wrongly with a wrong view of God and a, a condemning vision of your own sins, everything that happens in this chapter would feel like it's an attack. It feels like God is out to clobber you. And in fact, God is seeking to test them. When God opens up old wounds, it feels like he's going to hurt us all over again. When, when God brings out our baggage, it feels like he's trying to steal something. feels like he's out to, to deal with us, out to, to get us. God's testing can feel like an attack, but he seeks our repentance. He's not seeking our harm. Now, as you, as you look at the, the passage here, when, when Joseph's brothers are accused of being spies... Do you think they thought that felt like an attack? I, I think they did. When they're put into prison, did, did that feel like an attack? Probably did. But each of these things that happens to the brothers makes them think, makes them reflect, makes them uh, go back through their own uh, list of memories and actions. In verses 15 and 16, we're told twice it was a test 
a test. And God's tests always have a good purpose. Uh, Consider Exodus 20.20. There it says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The point is, God doesn't want us to be scared of his testing, but he wants to recognize that the purpose of testing is for us to develop a healthier reverence toward him, that we would rightly fear him, and that, that healthy fear would, in fact, keep us from sinning, would change our, our desires and motivations in such a way that, that we would more naturally gravitate towards righteousness and truth. He wants us to see his good purposes in our testing so that we will embrace them, grow from them, and learn from them. That's what David says in Psalm 26.2. He says, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. He has come to the point where he has seen testing does something good in me. It does something healthy in my life. I'm going to invite it. I'm going to welcome it because I, I see how I'm growing through, through God's tests. I, I see how it is rooting out things in my life that would, I would otherwise not deal with. Now, there was an example of this after the 2008 housing and loan crisis. As, as that went down, people recognized there were, there were these economic experts who who assured everyone that they knew exactly what they were doing, and yet they helped plunge our world into financial crisis anyway. And in the wake of that, there were many people that were that sprung into action saying, what, what, what do we need to do in, 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 with this present moment? And there were others who were, who were springing into action and focusing all of their energy on oh, planning for the future. What do we need to do next? And there were a group of economists in Edinburgh, Scotland, who said, no, we think the response to this has to go in a completely different direction. They, they came together and they developed what they called the library of mistakes. They made a collection of books, videos, blogs, and podcasts, courses that they offered dealing with a litany of mistakes because they said that smart people keep doing dumb things. And by providing a a history of these mistakes that people keep making, it was their hope that people would learn from them. Because they said, if we don't learn from our past mistakes, we are condemned to repeat them. And... One of, the, one of the things that, that we come to is if you, if you know Jesus Christ and you know the grace that is in him, it gives you the courage to face your own library of mistakes. It gives you the confidence that there is a God who is bigger than your problems, bigger than your failures, but with his grace, you can go and revisit those, uh, those problems in your life and with, with his help, find his strength to not repeat them. And so I wonder whether you've done that. 
whether you have the courage to face your own library of mistakes. Do you reflect on your sins and failures, or do you just try to get past them? Let's put that behind us quickly and move forward. Let's just deal with, you know, tomorrow, let's forget about yesterday. Are you secure enough in God's grace to invite his testing? Or do you accuse him of attacking you and assume that he has ill intent? Now, so far we've said the happy ending is never just about arriving. We've said that shame can make God's testing feel like an attack. And the final takeaway from this passage is that sometimes you need to dig up the past in order to break free of it. In verse 21, we see how God's testing in the brothers' lives is having its effect. It says this, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. The test that they are going through mirrors their own crime so perfectly that they can't help but explain it away as a, as a coincidence. They know that God is at work. The guilt of their conscience, even though their sin is 20 years old by this point, it still weighs on them. It still hangs upon them. There can be no peace without dealing with their past sin. And so finally here, there's an acknowledgement of their guilt. They, they face what they have done, and they feel the weight of it. They recognize, we're guilty. It was wrong. We, we knew it was wrong. He cried out for us to stop, and we didn't listen to him. And so we deserve God's punishment. We deserve his, his, a reckoning for the sins that we've committed. Sometimes it takes a trial like that to awaken our conscience. Sometimes it takes us going through something very painful, very difficult for us to stop and consider our ways and look at our hearts to, to, to examine our, our past and to deal with what's gone before us. But if our story ended here, you and I would probably walk away with a wrong understanding of God, his purposes, his plans, and maybe uh, what to expect for our own lives. We, we would assume that this was a how-to how guide of how every family gets a happy ending and the simple steps that you need to take to, to pursue it. And maybe you'd even conclude, I, I see what I need to do. I just need to throw my family in prison and then we will, they'll, they'll come to their senses and we'll all live happily ever after. Well, that is not the message of this story. What we get is far more realistic. Joseph's brothers leave Simeon in prison and they travel home to get Benjamin. Joseph has generously given them back all of their money and he fills them with as much grain as they can carry. Watch what happens in verses 35 and 36. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, the, their father, said to them, You've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. And finally, in verse 38, Jacob says, 
My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he's the only one left. You hear that last part? He's the only one left. By my count, even if he thinks that Joseph is dead, and if he figures that Simeon is in prison, that still leaves 10 sons. But by his calculation, he's only got one that really matters. The, the, the favoritism, the, just the, the toxic dynamics are still holding this, uh, th this family in place like those bracelets around the elephant's foot. And, and just imagine for a moment the calculation that goes through this man's mind, the father's mind. He is willing to put his son Simeon in prison presumably for the rest of his life, rather than have any potential harm happen to uh, his favorite son, Benjamin. There's been no change here. The same toxic dynamics are at work. The same painful attitudes are still controlling this family and its outcome. And so the conflict remains unresolved. Simeon remains in prison. Reconciliation with Joseph doesn't happen. And all the testing seems in vain. And the chapter just ends there. And I think you and I, while we would love to, to fast forward to the ending, I think we need to just let it sit there. Because... This is often where we find ourselves sitting. Maybe that's the reality for some of you this morning. Sometimes the past does need to be dug up. You want to see if there are wrongs to be righted, if there are sins to be confessed, if there are lessons to be unlearned. But you can do all of that and do it all perfectly and it doesn't mean that it fixes everything. It doesn't mean that there is always change. Joseph teaches us that sometimes a famine isn't even enough. You know, this was an international famine, and that wasn't enough to wake up this father to his, his sinful heart and his attitudes that were killing his family. It wasn't enough to change him. And so we do what we do we do what God leads us to do out of obedience to God, but we leave the rest in his hands. Change of other people and other people's repentance is not a task that he's delegated to us. It's not a power that he's given. Now, the principles of this ch chapter are more foundational to you and me than probably most of us recognize. And because... Some of you have maybe started attending church and you have maybe come and as you've, uh, as you've heard the teachings and you've heard the messages, you've been exposed to the word of God, maybe you're still just living in the moment spiritually. And what I mean is that 
while you've heard different things, you've never gone back to your old beliefs, to, to, to what, you, what other things that you've been exposed to, and compared them to uh, what you have heard in the Word of God. And in that way, your religious background is like those metal bracelets on the feet of the adult elephant. Even though they're not attached to anything, they still hold you in place. They still keep you somewhere, keep you from moving forward. Maybe for some of you, that's, that's why it, it just feels impossible for you to make a, a clear decision for Christ. Maybe it's what makes it impossible for you to, uh, to clearly show your allegiance to him in, in baptism. Because there, there's, it's always been lived in the moment. There's never been, the past has never been dug up never been confronted with the word of God and given yourself an opportunity to learn from him and, and make a clear break. The same principle may be behind why some of you really can't get Jesus. Because as you look at his life, there's so much that, that you appreciate, but you're seeing him as someone who's living in the moment spiritually. When in fact, the heart of Jesus' mission and life and ministry was to go back and dig up the past and deal with it. Jesus' mission was to come and deal with the consequences of Adam's sin. He, he came to undo something that goes all the way back to the garden. He came to bear the penalty and to deal with the consequences of humanity's sin. And because of that, his death on the cross is, is not just a, a, a sidelight to, uh, to his ministry. It is at the heart of his mission. He's digging up the past and dealing with it. And until you see that, it's difficult to understand Jesus. It's difficult to understand what he came to do. And, and no one, frankly, comes, becomes a Christian without digging up their own past. You have to dig up at least enough of your own past to recognize, I'm, I'm a sinner. I, I have done enough to, to, to warrant God's judgment, and I need a savior. I need forgiveness. I need a pardon. Now, most of you have done that. But maybe since putting your faith in Jesus, it's been... No turning back for you. It's all been about the new life, but there's never been enough time for you to pause, to go back and deal with some of the past. You haven't looked for wrongs to be righted, sins to, con sins to be confessed, or lessons to be unlearned. And so the invisible chains still remain. They still hold you in place. I'd been a Christian for seven, eight, seven or eight years before I was convicted by God to, to, to deal with this, to, to go back and to deal with some of my past, to try and dig up to the, as best I understood, as best as I, I, I could see, uh, to deal with those things in my past, open up the baggage, and try to address it. I remember a, a person, I, I just I called up a person, hadn't spoken to them in years, called them up, uh, someone from high school, and 
just apologized for things that I had said to them that I just, as I thought back over that high school period, just the, the things that I, I had said to this person just weighed on me and, and convicted me. And, and I wanted to be free of them, and I wanted them to be free of that wound. I remember uh, writing a letter and sending some money to, uh, uh, to, to someone who I, I had uh, broken something uh, of, of this individual's in university. And I just, as I thought over that relationship, I just thought, that, that's just been undone. I just ignored that. I, I just left it in the past and never dealt with it. Never went back, never, never came to terms with it. And so I just tried to go back through my life and think of unfinished business, things that I had left, wrongs that I had never righted, and tried as best as I could to, to deal with them. It began to change the, my attitudes and actions, how I behaved towards my parents, and, and, and just kind of working through some of the, the patterns and unhealthy attitudes that I saw in my relationship to my family. And through that process, God gave me a sense of freedom. Probably, like Jacob, there are still sins that I, and wrongs that I can't see still. There are probably, there's probably lots of Jacob in me that, that, that resist dealing with stuff that I can't see or stubbornness that keeps me from it. But as you submit yourself to, to God and ask the Holy Spirit to test you, to try you, to help you to dig up the past to the extent that it needs to be dealt with, he can set you free from it. The chains come off. Those old patterns, those old wrongs no longer need control you or affect you or infect you. And as importantly... You know, where other people and wrongs that you have done to them are concerned, having the courage to make those things right as best as you can allows their healing to take place, allows their wounds to be relieved. And so I want to just ask you, have you gone there? Have you had the courage through the grace that you received in Jesus Christ to go and revisit your library of mistakes? To dig into those things that you know, they just, they don't, they're not going anywhere unless you go and deal with them. Make a call, send a letter, talk to the person, set it right. Make an inventory of the thoughts and the experiences that have shaped you wrongly or rightly. And if there are lessons to be unlearned, if, if there are lessons that you kind of took away from an experience and now in light of the word of God, you say, that, that just, that's just wrong. I don't want to carry that with me anymore. I, I'm just going to reject that lesson that I learned because that, that that's toxic for me. I want to release it. This is repentance. This is how God changes us. It's how God sets us free. Let's look to him in prayer as we call on his help. Oh, Father in heaven, 
Thank you for the help that you give in your word. If there's anyone here this morning who has never broken from their past to fully trust in Jesus, help them to trust you today. All in. Clear, decisive. Your grace gives us a courage to face our failures and deal with our past. But give us help as we do. Give us eyes to see where we need to go. And give us the wisdom to know what needs to be left alone. For we ask you to set us free from the chains of our past. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.